Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with April Ryan, White House correspondent since 1997, covering five presidents for the American Urban Radio Network and now The Grio. She's the author of three books and appears regularly as a CNN political analyst. April Ryan, welcome to That Said. Oh, Michael Zeldin, thank you for letting me say what will be said. (laughs) So I always like to start these interviews by asking my guests to tell us something about themselves. So would you indulge me and and give us something about yourself? I am a Baltimore native who's raising two wonderful girls, um, Ryan and Grace. You know, I think of myself more as a mother than I think about myself more as a journalist because I don't care. It's Michael, this is the funniest thing. I could be in the Oval Office, you know, doing pool, transcribing something. One of them will text me, where's my shirt? Where's my sweater? Can I go out tonight? And it's not about the president for them. It's about them, you know, but (laughs) I'm like everyone. You have children who pull on you, who demand you and I am a mother first and foremost before anything and then I am whatever the world sees me as. Well let's talk a little bit about what the world sees you as because for me you're you're a a journalistic hero so a little bit about your 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 career in journalism how did you come to it? Um, You know I came about it in a roundabout way and I'm still thinking like am I there yet? Um, (laughs) I, um, as a kid, I used to watch the news with my parents. They were, if, if we could put the words, the term news junkie on people in the seventies, um, and eighties, I would say that my parents listened to the news in the morning. They listened to the news when we sat, they listened to AM radio in the morning. When my dad and mom got home at night, they would watch Walter Cronkite telling us that's the way it was. Information, news and information was always part of the culture in our home. And I wanted to get into um, the business, but I was looking more so as being a dish jockey, but not knowing that my um, I had more of a calling for news and information. My parents were always ahead of the curve when it came to being involved in the community and getting information. So when I was a disc jockey, when the news person came in, I would be like, mm, I want to do that. And I was at Morgan State, um, and I started, I became a producer at first. And then after I became a producer, I started doing news. Um, I was doing news at different radio stations um, in the area and in Tennessee. And um, I came back home, and... Um, that's what happened. I mean, I was hired by a boutique organization that noticed me. And after I was covering the NAACP for many years, and it was when Ben Chavis was the then president. And I reported one of the first people to report, it's not if, but when Ben Chavis was going to leave the organization. And the Dell Highbrook story. So they said, wait a minute, let's bring her into DC. So they did. And the rest is history. You've been the here. rest is history. Her story, yes. <laughs> Although you do still commute between Washington D.C. and Baltimore, so that's a bit of a schlep. It's a day. lot. It's a lot, but that's my downtime. <laughs> that's mm-hmm. my downtime. But I do commute. Yes. So what I'd like to talk about today are, are two things, principally. First, your 2017 book, At Mama's Knee. Mothers okay. and Race in Black and White, which mm-hmm. is a terrific read. And then a bit of what's going on today. Tell me, you know, talking a little bit about voter suppression and critical race theory and stuff. But let's, let's start, let's start with At, at Mama's Knee, uh, because I think it's an important book um, for parents uh, thinking about race and talking about how to talk about race. Mm-hmm. So, it seemed to me in reading the book that your mother was your hero. Mm -hmm. She was, she was, she was my hero. She was the woman who nurtured me. She loved me to success. She 
I was, she always wanted a daughter named April from the time she was 12 years old. And when she married my father, and two years later, at the age of, I think, it, I forgot what year, she was on 22 or 24 when she had me. And um, she got her April. And, and at her death, I said to her, I said, Mom, I'm sorry if I wasn't the, the daughter that you wanted. She said, who told you that? And she said, you were everything I wanted. And that moves me, you know. And she used to always tell me, she said, I don't know where you get your fight from, but I love it. And my father was a fighter, but my mother is my hero. Um, she taught me so much about life. My father taught me some too, but mothers and fathers for me are different. Um, well, at least in my house. So my father was the man who went out there and made a way for whatever we wanted to happen. You know, he brought in the... He brought in the money. He, he kept the house afloat. My mother worked too, but my mother was that nurturer. But both of them always taught me about life, how to be in the uh, professional workspace. My mother told me how to manage um, my life. She worked on a college campus and she dealt with contracts, contracting entertainers, etc. And she said, well, one day when you have your book, this is what you do. She gave me the building blocks and the understanding of how to be who I was, but also telling me along the way that I am enough, whether beyond race. It wasn't just about race. It was I am enough. And she taught me critically that I come from a people who are overcomers, who are resilient, but who still need. She was that woman who her and my father, let me say both of them, they always taught me when you see someone um, down, you don't look down and step over them. You look down to pick them up. You know, they always taught me, it was about people that taught me about humility. They taught me about care, um, caring for others, caring for the community. And they taught me about the pitfalls of the realities of life. And, you know, I've written books about that, about race, matters of race. Yeah, you write in the book, I experienced a lot of struggles of my life with my mother, and that helped me make better decisions in my life. But most importantly, she taught me never give up and never That's give right. in. That's right. That's right. And this never give up, never give in, we saw play out, and maybe you can talk a little bit about it, um, during your coverage of um, the Trump White House, where you were really target of some pretty nasty stuff that led you to need to get um, police protection. So can we talk a little bit about that and how this never police protection, security, private security, a whole bunch. Um, I believe, you know, I don't believe I know for a fact that minority women were not um, valued. Um, in the last administration, and especially if you came from an outlet that they didn't view as in their circle, in their orbit. Um, Also, I find that... uh, I'm sorry, just to interrupt, your your circle, your orbit was the Urban Radio Network. American Urban Radio Network, a boutique organization um, that used to have a newsroom. It's no longer um, where it used to be when I joined, but, um, you know... It's, they never thought that, you know, I was strong enough. I had Republicans tell me that, you know, oh, they said you're formidable. They never thought you'd be able to stand against all that I was, all the attacks that came towards me. And I did. Yeah, you did. And I think one of the events that was most, you know, sort of crystallizing of the, the way you were treated was when you, with no delight, asked the president whether he was a racist? um, That was was a moment that shook me, uh, Michael. That day was rough. Um, And you had, you know, when the late great John Lewis was alive, you know, we talked to him and he said, look, all the stars lining up, it looks like he is. The NAACP was saying he's a racist. Everyone, all of these organizations were saying he was a racist. He was, at that time, you have to remember, we were talking about, um, uh, we've our, we, we had um, Charlottesville. We had um, 
Sergeant LaDavid Johnson, the snafu with, with Sergeant LaDavid Johnson and Congressman Frederica Wilson. We had had um, the president allegedly saying um, S-hole nations talking about Haiti and Africa and things, places, dark, uh, uh, darker hued people where they live, the, the places with the origins from where they live. Um, and just being him. And also when you had General Kelly talking about slavery, the conversation about slavery, he said, you know, if there was a compromise, well, you know, that compromise was to keep certain Southern states, certain states um, being able to have slaves. Yeah, that the was compromise, compromise. That's right. The, the, the Missouri compromise was to allow for the expansion of slavery into the, into the new territories. That's what exactly, Lincoln was against. Exactly. Exactly. So and what would have happened, Michael, we probably, if that, if that compromise stayed in effect, we wouldn't be talking to this day. Right. But here's right. the problem um, for them. They didn't, I don't think they understood what that compromise or they did and they hoped that people didn't understand. I think they were trying to slip some code in there and we're hoping people didn't understand because I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt, benefit of the doubt that they knew what they were talking about because what caused the compromise not to happen is the firing on Fort Sumter. Hello, the Civil War. So, and when I asked, I said, well, does the president support slavery? This Sarah Huckabee Sanders most, said the most ridiculous question in the um, press corps. How is it ridiculous when they're talking about this compromise allowing for slavery in states still? Okay, some states can keep slavery, but yet I'm crazy. So they were banking on the fact that a lot of people didn't understand what I was talking about. So with all of that, all of that that I just told you, I asked the question. That was the question of the moment. That day was the day when President, then President Donald Trump had members of the King family there at the White House in the Roosevelt room. That day was, I believe it was the Friday before King holiday, that Monday the nephew and the niece or the cousin relatives of Dr. King were there. And I said, April, are you going to ask the question? And I was like, I said, I can't ask this question. And I said, April, are you going to ask this question? And I ultimately did. The president never answered until three, three days later. And they never forgave me. And one of his minions, um, Darrell, what's his name? Uh, Darrell Scott. Pastor Darrell Scott from Cleveland wanted to throw water on me there because I asked about it and the Marine had to stand in between us. And that wasn't it because after we left, I went outside and I told him, don't you ever come on my job and tell, try to stop me from doing what I did. He said, nobody was doing it. I said, yes, you did. And he jumped in my bed and it was really bad. And I left there crying because not because of him, but because I had, me as a black woman in that time, in this modern era, had to ask a sitting president of the United States, Mr. President, are you a racist? No one should ever have to do that. I have said it over and over again, and people will pull it up, but I have said it's a sad day anytime a reporter has to ask a sitting United States president, a United States president, Mr. President, are you a racist? Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say the, the byproduct of that, though, was that they tried to marginalize you. Well, they the tried, and 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 but they also they also called you a lot of names. Um, called me names. They did things. They said threats. They called me. Oh, that's that's the mildness of it. They called me names. That's not a big deal. We've had to move our home. We had to hire security. It was terrible. And it's still not good. I still get, you know, these crazy outlets. And I'm not going to give them any more air by calling their names. But they call me names still to this day because I ask questions about voting rights. And I said, you know, the other day I said, you know, I asked Jen, I said, you know, voting rights has essentially collapsed, which it has. But yet I'm crazy. Yeah. I'm called crazy. You know, but then you, you, get, a you get a, a, a congresswoman arrested on the... January 6th happens. Oh, everybody. I remember seeing a woman, a white woman, an elderly white woman hobbling down the steps and a, a police officer in riot gear holding her hand, helping her go down the steps. 
But Congresswoman Joyce Beatty, a black woman, Congresswoman Joyce Beatty, is not taken hold and she's taken into a police van, taken to jail with a communal toilet. And none of those white people got it. Because she's trying to get voting rights. Rights not just for black people or brown people, but for all, all of us. Yeah. So but I'm great. Yeah. We'll, <laughs> okay. We'll talk about that in, in, in a minute, but I want to stay focused a little bit. Oh, you know, Ryan, I was going to say, it reminded me in, in your book, you quote Dr. King. He says, it's not what they call you, but what you answer to. And, and that's and, what my yeah. mother used to always tell me. She yeah. left such a wonderful groundwork. So um, one thing I wanted to tell you, which I thought was sort of fun, which was that y- you and your mom had this thing where you would say to her, I love you. And she would say, I love you back. And um, which sort of made me smile. But also I can, I wanted to tell you that my wife and her late mom, my wife would just say, I love you. And my, my mother-in-law, her mom used to say, I love you more. So you had, I love you back. And my mother-in-law saying, I love you more. But I thought the, the, I love you, I love you back, I love you more was just perfect. It's uh, synonymous, yeah. But it's, yeah. It's, it's the expression of the inward feeling that transcends body, it transcends time. Um, those were the last words my mother said to me. Yeah, yeah. I remember, I remember yeah. reading. And it, and it kind of, it's kind of, um, it's sacred to me. And it's, I'm cheering up now because I miss her to this day, you yeah. know. But you know, you're, you're at you're at nine years, right? Ten years? No, it's fourteen now, I believe. Oh, fourteen right? years, and yeah. my father has now been like three. In August, I think mm. it's three. Yeah. Not fair. Mm. It's not. Fair. It's not fair. But you know, one day I'll see them again. That's the way I feel. And um, you do your work on this earth, and then you move on. That's the yeah. way I feel. Yeah. In the book, at Mama's knee. Mothers and Race in Black and White, you um, reference a poem by Langston Hughes called Mother to Son. And I um, read that poem. um, Did it make you, did it, did it make you, did it move you? Everything Langston Hughes writes moves me. But (laughs) the, um, the thing, the first sentence of the poem um, is well, it says, well, son, I'll tell you, life for me ain't been no crystal stair. And it said uh, what in it? It said, well, son, I'll tell you, life for me ain't been no crystal stair. And then the next line, what, what's in the stair? What's been in the stair? I don't have the phone in front of me. Do you remember it offhand? It's got tax in it and also oh, yeah. go to it. I'm going right. to it now, yeah. Yeah. But the point is, the point is, uh, I know that poem is meaningful to you because you write that your mother offered truths about the harsh realities, mm-hmm. not sugarcoating it for her child, um, mm-hmm. but to navigate through life knowing the harsh realities of life. And you talk about the importance in motherhood of talking about sort of the harsh realities and not sugarcoating it. And so I was wondering if you could elaborate on that a bit. Yeah, I'm going to elaborate on it, but I'm going to, I'm going to give Langston Hughes a little bit of time because we, we, we need to uh, sit in this for a minute because this kind of goes along with what my mother taught me. And I don't think she, her life, her life kind of mimics the conversation in this poem, but I don't think she meant to mimic it, but it's just trying to guide her child through life safely and give her hope in the midst of weariness. So here it is, Mother to Son by Langston Hughes. Well, son, I tell you, life for me ain't been no crystal stair. It's had tacks in it and splinters and boards torn up, and places with no carpet on the floor, bare. But all the time, I've been a-climbing on, and reaching landings, and turning corners, and sometimes going in the dark, where there ain't, there's, there ain't been no light. So boy, don't you turn back. 
don't you set down on the steps because you find it's kind of hard. Don't you fall now, okay? For our, for eyes is still going, honey. Eyes still climbing. And life for me ain't been no crystal stair. Yeah, it's a great poem. So Isn't that something eyes, that's so poignant? Yeah, so eyes still climbing is sort of your mom's mm-hmm. message and yours is yours as well, right? Never stop. Never stop. That's right. That's right. Never stop. But Never you, stop. you, you. I'd like you though to 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 talk about this some more because you write that um, unless you prepare your children, they will live up, but really live down to the expectations of the world. You have to raise your children to think otherwise about themselves, and you emphasize that transmitting to your children value, to value themselves, to have a sense of self-worth, irrespective of what societal expectations are for them, is fundamental to to your responsibility as a mom and to their appreciation of the world in which they live. And I think that was a very important theme of At Mom's And I was wondering if you could talk us through that a little bit more, please. So, um, Michael... I'm going to give you something that was given to me by Bishop Walter Scott Thomas. He is the pastor of the church that the late Congressman Elijah Cummings used to attend. And he said to me, he said, April, there is no other community in the world like Baltimore where you have the word failure automatically put into your existence. Isn't that something? Yeah. Baltimore. Let's say, can you say Freddie Gray? Okay. Um, the spotlight on the blight was um, heart-wrenching when Freddie Gray died. It's a city that I love. Um, the word failure in our existence. My mother taught me you have to be three times, four times better than the average person because the automatic assumption is you're Black and you're not going to do work. You're not going to be there. You know, we, it's, it's unfortunate. We live in a time where we still need affirmative action for people to be able to come into the workplace. You know, I tell people it's not who you know, but what you know. Who you know gets you there, but what you know keeps you there. Yeah. And unfortunately, we're still in that mindset. You can read in newspapers today. There are people who are listening to this just to see what I have to say because they hate me so much and hate what I say. They don't want to believe it. But if you walked a mile in my shoes, would you want to? Would you want to walk the mile in my shoes that are not pretty things? Not when I go to the White House, but when I'm the average person on the street. That's the question. Well, um, in the in the book, in, in, in the book, to, to put up exclamation point on on that sentence you have um a chapter that um horribly is entitled um but appropriately for for the purposes of the book i mean horribly societally perfect for the book you have a a chapter that's called born a statistic i am a divorced black woman the two young children. I'm not supposed to be doing what I'm doing at all. I'm not supposed to be who I am. Stats show that I'm supposed to be by myself um, in poverty. And I refuse to go down. That's once again the fight that continues. Because of my upbringing, I try to fight the stereotypes and statistics. To be different. Yes, I am divorced. I chose to be divorced. But still, I'm divorced. But still raising two children who understand about society, who are going to have as many chances as children from a household with a mother and father. I refuse to be the statistic. The statistics, and I, I, and, I and that's... One of the many reasons I love you, April Ryan, but 
the 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 statistics that you cite in the book are are, are startling. Are, Startling. 57% of uh, black women are working only in two categories, sales, uh, service jobs, and clerical office jobs. Um, black women earning 64 cents on the dollar to mm-hmm. white um, counterparts. Um, white women with a median income of 45000 ish dollars and black women with a median income of about $100. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, the white households having a median income 20 times that of black households. I mean, these statistics are bone chilling. Right. But yet when I ask these questions in the White House briefing room, I'm a liar. OK, when I ask questions about communities that are underserved, I'm a race baiter. I say go to the staff. Um, we in 2021 still have, let's say even before COVID, let's take COVID out of the equation. We have people who were struggling to survive. Now with COVID, it's been exacerbated. Women are holding up households, holding up households, black women who are out here, like I said, in service categories, frontline workers. In the midst of a deadly pandemic, trying to hold it down. But yet, when we talk about it and we say, talk, have conversations about policing, have conversations about uh, voting rights, have conversations about reparations, oh, it's nothing wrong. Yeah, there is something wrong. Well, in the book, you again cite two statistics which bear out the truth of what you're saying, which is that. 40% 40% of working mothers are now the sole or primary breadwinners in the family and 55 household. Yep, and 55% of black families are headed by a single mom compared to 20, 21% compared to 21% of white women. Right. And black women are more more times likely to be in poverty than a white woman. Right. Right. As they're heading the household. Right. Our society does not make it conducive for us to succeed. When we talk about unemployment, let's talk about underemployment. Those women who are out there piecing together jobs, just to send Johnny, Sue, or Jamal and Tiffany to school. Or it's the odds are so stacked against us. And there is this generational thing, this mindset that has not been broken. Over 402 years, it has not been broken. And that is why we bring it. We put it on the table. That is why I talk to my children about race. That is why I talk to my children. I help them sit with them and carve out, let's talk about what do you want to do? My oldest daughter, well, mommy, I want to go to college. I said, well, I said, here's what you're going to do for your life chances. I said, I will go, I will work my fingers to the bone to make sure that you can get a chance to go to the college that you choose. And let's talk about that. I told her the college that she chooses, but I had, she chooses, but I had to put parameters in there. I said, you can't go to a school down south because if they find out you're my child, there's a problem. So as I'm setting these parameters for them to live their lives, I also have to help them be safe. So my daughter is going to one of the top 100 schools in this nation to become a doctor, clinical psychologist. And that is amazing. My other child, I don't know, but we don't know where she wants to go. But I'm trying to give them options and and life chances and afford them opportunities so that they can see that there is a life out there and not feel beholden to and be relegated to what society says we should be. How dare society tell me what I, I'm free. And that's what Dr. King marched for. First class citizenship for black America. And then before he died, he and Bobby Kennedy had planned, before both of them died, they had planned to deal with the economics of it all. Yeah. They had planned to, to deal with the economics. 
Within that six-week period, I know people thought it was Armageddon. Two of the nation's most prominent leaders are assassinated. And Coretta Scott King said Martin Luther King wasn't assassinated for first-class citizenship. It was when he started talking about the money matters. Well, I, you know, I, it's in that, that the bounce check that he was talking about at the March on Washington. Right. The thing that I always have thought, and I've argued it um, with with a certain amount of, of conviction um, that I'm, I'm correct, which is that you can't understand race and racial injustice completely without understanding the role that class plays in our society. And, and Dr. King and his poor people's um, war campaign, the, the, the war on poverty, even going back to the Panthers, the Black Panthers. Oh, you yes. Look their, you look at their 10-point program, because I lived in that time period. Their 10-point program focused on feeding kids and fighting yes. for housing and providing for health care, too. Exactly. So it, it, it always struck me that that the Panthers got it, Dr. King got it in the end of his life, that, that race and class are, are, are interwoven and that class actually may be the more um, challenging thing to deal with. But Let, me tell, you something. Let me tell you something. I, I refuse to be bound. You know, my mother, my, both my parents were from agrarian families. My father from an agrarian family in Maryland my mother in North Carolina, my mother used to tell me about how my grandfather, oh my gosh, my mother's father had a hundred acres of land. That's unheard of. This little short black man had a hundred acres of land. He was born in, I think, in 1901. I've been looking it up on the, I knew, but I looked it up on the census. I've been doing this big thing with, um, uh, what is it? The, um, one, a hundred, what is it? What, 23 and me or whatever. Yeah, you know, the, right. the genealogy yeah. thing. The, an, the ancestry.com so, um, sort of thing. And I saw some of the, yeah, ancestry.com. And it's so wonderful to see all the stuff that they had about him and how the, the land that he owned in North Carolina. And that's unheard of for a black man to keep his, his land back then. And that gives me pause. So I said, you know, I come from people who are resilient, the strongest who survived the middle passage i my mother's great grandmother's father no my mother's grandmother's father excuse me my great great my grandmother my great great yeah my great great grandfather joseph dollar brown was sold on the auction block in fayetteville north carolina and he didn't know how to read or write there was just an x next to his name and in the census stuff on ancestry.com it said he didn't know how to read or write I refuse for anyone to tell me where I cannot live. When I had to flee from my home because of (laughs) ignorant people who felt that I was a threat to society, (laughs) I said, okay, I moved into a community where they had redlined many years ago where they said blacks couldn't come. They had redirected the black people to this black community instead of going out there. I said, no, 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 no. My life is the embodiment of I am in this first-class citizenship society. You know, the the society that Dr. I I don't live scared. I cannot. I don't live fearful, but I have to tell my children. I'm clear-eyed about what's out there. I'm clear-eyed about racism. And I see it, you know, even when it's, 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 it's overt or whether it's subtle, I'm clear about it. And I'm trying to live by example. I, I, if I ask about it in the briefing room, I'm going to live by it in my life. And the thing of it is, guess what, Michael, where I moved, I moved into a Jew, a, a Jewish community, a, a wonderful Jewish enclave. And, you know, I believe in all people sitting down at the table together. Shirley Chisholm said, if you don't have a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. Well, honey, I bring a lot of folding chairs and a lot of people with me for the, to sit at those tables because it's important. It's important. We, you know, Donald Trump talked about, oh, we, to all of the people who followed him, who majority look like him. We built this nation. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. You didn't even build the White House. So... I refuse to live. 
I refuse to live as if I don't matter. We all matter. And sitting down at the table, brotherhood, I love it. I love communing with brothers and sisters of all walks of life. I celebrate everyone. I believe everyone should have a piece of, of, of the pie. I mean, when you hear about your mother, when she walked home from school, and, and, and the kids on the school bus would spit on her, the white kids, that incenses me. And I just, I, we should not be back in that time. And we are. And I refuse, Michael. I refuse. And that's why I, I read to my children and we sit and talk about things. You know, when police involved uh, killings that have been going on, when voting was, my kids are the first one to hug a tree in March now. They were marching in COVID against my my uh <laughs> my statements to them but i was like look i said just wear a mask and stay away from people and they marched and they were safe and they wore masks because they wanted to let people know it's not right and but at the same time being part a fully contributing part of society to make change for the better w.e.b du bois wrote either the united states will destroy ignorance or ignorance will destroy the United States. Mm. And and I wonder what your thoughts are in that in that tension between the United States will destroy ignorance or ignorance will destroy the United States. As you see what's going on in 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 the United States and in Congress about the teaching of critical race theory, which really fundamentally is just that our society is has been and remains structurally racist and people need to understand um, that in order for us to move forward. Uh, I just don't understand what it is and you're covering it on the ground. What is it that, that is so challenging to this that it seems to me that ignorance is, it's a new America. word. This is a new word for racism. This is a new phrase for racism. Critical race theory. Cut me a break. Let me tell you something. I'm so proud of Nicole Hannah Jones. Oh my gosh, I'm so proud of her. She literally told America that slavery was not black folks sitting on a boat with a picnic basket going by Ellis Island and, and laying their claim to a plot of land. She told the truth people didn't want it she was up for tenure at her alma mater of all places and they said nope and she said okay so she did the okie doke and I loved it because if any university could do that that sets a precedent because someone tells the truth about what really happened in history oh well they're mad because people get upset and get their feelings hurt because their ancestors or people that they may know did something. I had a, I had a, 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 a lady I worked with Tuesday. She doesn't talk to me anymore and I'm, I'm fine with it. She used to always go on my Facebook page and she's a Republican white lady. She's, she, I, I looked up to her at one point, but I don't anymore. And, and I'll tell you why. And um, I worked with her and I, at the time when she said it, I thought she just didn't understand, but she understood more than I knew. I gave her the benefit of the doubt. Of the doubt. I was in my 20s and, and I should have never given her the benefit of the doubt. She said, oh, you know, my family, I was the only black person on the job. Oh, my family owns a plantation in Virginia. I said, what? And I said, do you realize sitting up here bragging about it? You own my family. And then she was like running there, right? Oh, well, I just, I just want to be proud of my family. And I'm, I, you know, am I wrong to be proud of my family? Yeah, in front of me. And then when Donald Trump became president, she's up there doing this, talking all this stuff about he doesn't mean this about race. I'm like, I said, look, if you do this again, maybe I'll get up here on here and talk about how somebody was talking about their family in a plantation. She stopped. Because I got tired of my white friends who were in support of Donald Trump coming off with these crazy lies when you own slaves and it's not okay. Your family owns slaves. She's not wealthy by any stretch, but the wealth was there at some point. Whatever they did to squander it, that's on them. We don't owe her nothing else. 
So, mm. but I'm tired of it. The truth is the truth. If you can't take it, I'm sorry. But the truth is the truth. Yeah. Slavery, Jim Crow, all of it. I mean, the lynchings, it happened. Civil, the Civil War, it happened. Yeah. Don, Don Lemon writes in his book, This is the Fire, he writes, 150 years after the official end of the Civil War, the United States is engaged in what many people call an uncivil war, an ideological conflict between those who cling to a barbaric ethnic caste system and those who are determined to progress beyond it. And, and I think that's pretty much where we are. Do you think, April? Yes, Don is right. But the question is, how do we get out of it? Um, it takes people of goodwill. Because I think, I do believe there's more, there are more people of goodwill than there are these crazy people um, to speak up and, and take a stand. People are, we are afraid of the loudest. And a lot of the loudest are making the noise. 40,000 people out there on January 6th. 40,000 people. Secret Service, um, my Secret Service sources tell me that 25 to 30,000 people went through the mags on the ellipse. And a lot of them knew they didn't, couldn't get in, so they didn't try. And that was like thousands more. This is about 10, 15,000, maybe 20,000 more that couldn't get through because they had backpacks. A lot of those who couldn't get through went up to the hill. We have got to stop saying what it is, but now it's time for solutions. It's time for solutions. You know, Joe Biden ran on, you know, he doesn't like what he sees with um, uh, what's happening in Charlottesville. Okay, but now it's time for solutions. You know, I, I... I don't care what people think about Bill Clinton, but he tried to start this dialogue on race years ago. Remember, Michael? Yeah, yeah. It didn't go too far because of Monica Lewinsky, but he tried. Um, and I give him credit for that. But we can't... The president typically used to be the moral leader. <laughs> we thought they were the moral leader. But who do we rely on now? Who's going to show up at these conversations? Tensions are so high. What are we going to do? Well, that, 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 I mean, that question is joined, um, to me, most um, critically in this whole question of um, voter suppression and um, HR1, S1, the, mm. the, the voting rights stuff. So can, can you give us, uh, before we finish up, April, can you give us a, a sense of where, where things stand on, on that, as far as you can, as far as you can tell. Well, let me let me give you a sense of where everything stands right now. Policing is in trouble. Voting rights is in trouble. HR four, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, is still being written. Um, it hasn't really been written yet because the Supreme Court it's 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 fulfilling the mandate of the Supreme Court from 2013 from Shelby B. Holder. But HR one and HR four. I mean, HR1 and S1, excuse me. I just, I don't know. I think it's collapsing. I know it's collapsing. We've had hits. We've had two Supreme Court hits. Um, we're now voting without the full protections of the Voting Rights Act. And you've got all of these states coming up doing these uh, restrictive voting laws because Democrats won the White House. Democrats essentially won um, the Senate and they've got the House and Democrats won Georgia. Georgia, Georgia. Remember that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, Democrats won Georgia. And so now, you know, the question is what will Mitch McConnell do? What will Tim Scott do? Um, and I don't see, I don't see, I don't think, I don't see any I don't see any movement towards 1965, the 1965 Voting Rights Act being what it was. I mean, we've got voter suppression now all over the country. 
it's not just in the certain southern states that the 1965 Voting Rights Act was done. It's everywhere. North Dakota, North Carolina, it's everywhere. Every state is in California. They're putting out fake boxes in California. In Georgia, you had the president trying to tell them, add some votes for him. (laughs) The president of the United States caught on tape. So you don't you, you, you don't see Biden being successful here. You don't think that he's going to be able to push push this through, huh? We look. I asked that question, and it wound up on now this: When is the president going to lean in? He leaned in, but it's up to the coalitions. It's up to the disabled coalition, it's up to the Asian coalition, it's up to the Hispanic coalition, it's up to the black coalitions. This thing affects everybody. It's not just a black and white thing. I mean, black and brown thing. It's everybody. So it goes back to what LBJ, then President LBJ told Dr. King to do. Go out and make me do it. These coalitions have to go out and make Mitch McConnell, Tim Scott, and even uh, Joe Manchin do it. Um, they have a lot of these organizations, these coalitions, particularly the ministers, are, put in, are putting pressure on Joe Manchin in his district, uh, trying to get him to to change his mind. So I think what's happening is it's going back to the streets. These secret meetings are now breaking down, and now the leaders are doing this whisper campaign and telling everyone to go out there. It's Things have fallen apart. It's now up to the communities to do this. Um, I'm scared for what's ahead. I'm really scared for what's ahead. I'm not scared, but I'm going to be okay. But I'm scared for the other people who are marginalized and fall through the cracks and don't know how to climb out. That's who I'm scared for. In in um, in your at Mama's knee, you introduce chapter two of the book uh, with a quote that says, "Well-behaved women seldom make history," and and you go on to say that, <laughs> that this quote speaks volumes of those who worked and are still working to change the negative stereotypes and negative statistical data that always keep the ball from rolling forward for women and women of, of color. Um, and I, I wanted to say first, if you want to talk about that, I'd love to talk about that with you. And I want to <laughs> say, as we, as we get to the end of this interview, that um, my, my view of you has always been of one of those women who is pushing the ball forward. And I want to say <laughs> thank you, April Ryan, for pushing the ball forward and and following your mother's advice and not not giving in. So tell us, take us, take us out of the interview and give, give us your give us give us your parting words of wisdom so we can <laughs> so we can action it. Yes, action. Um, my mother was this 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 elegant, slender, tall toasted caramel complected woman who knew exactly what to say and what to do. And I got a little bit of that, but also got a little bit of my father's fight. And that fighter part of me is the fun part. (laughs) But what I will say, what I will say, what I will say is, um, as my producer just turned around and gave me a look like, oh my God. Um, What I will say is we cannot sit around anymore. Even if you're elegant women or the most fierce fighter man, each one of us has something to do. No matter where we are in life, we can make a change. Where we are right now, we can't sustain. We talk about we, the people, the democracy, Are we a democracy right now? Or are we being bullied into submission to something that the founding fathers didn't want? 
politics to me is not about party. It's about people and it's about humanity. And the question is, how much are we going to continue to take? When is enough enough? People are hurting. And the level of pain dictates how loud you holler. I don't think there's enough people out here in pain, apparently. And if you are, boy, you can hold it in. Um, <laughs> what is it? My mother used to say, they have a strong valetudinarian. Well, I don't. <laughs> I, I scream at the slightest, at the slightest pinch. We need more screamers out there. We need more dreamers out there. We need more women who head households to say how it really is. I say this as a human being, as a journalist, I'm ready to write the story. As a black woman, I'm part of the story and they're not going to allow, they're going to allow things to happen but I'm not going to allow it to happen to me or those I'm concerned about. We need more people to rise up, not just for themselves, but for their community. We're all in this together. And I'm going to end it with this. Yana Van Zandt, dear friend of mine, said something. When I say I'm my sister's keeper, no, I am my sister. When I say I'm my brother's keeper, no, I am my brother. We are in this together. We are in this together we got to fight on. It does take a village, does it not? Yes. My village is large and it's, it's filled with so many hues, complexions, sizes, cultures, races, parties. I celebrate everyone. But the shame is a lot of people don't celebrate us. When will we get to that day, Michael's Eldon, when we can celebrate each other? When will we get there? Well, I celebrate you. I know that. And uh, I know that where you sit in that White House briefing room, um, no one is going to be immune from being asked these hard questions. And I think the asking of these hard questions and the, the, to use LBJ's language, the forcing of people to give us answers is a good part of the solution. So I think you are part of the solution, April Ryan. And I'm hoping that more of us can be like you to ask hard questions and not take no for an answer. Oh, Michael Zell, I appreciate you. Thank you so much, my friend. Well, thank you for joining us today. Anytime. <laughs> that Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.